Well, hey everyone, welcome to episode 250 of F-Stop Collaborate and Listen with your host, Matt Payne. This week on the podcast, I was joined by a travel and landscape photographer hailing from Boise, Idaho, Michael Bonacore. Michael and I have been acquainted on social media for a very long time, and I've always enjoyed his enthusiasm, humor, and business acumen. As I expected, he was full of great information and easy to talk to, so I think you'll really enjoy our chat this week. Thanks to our newest patrons, Noel de Christian and Josh Stansfield for pledging to support the podcast on Patreon. As always, I appreciate your financial support. It really does help a lot and off- offsets a lot of costs that we incur, including transcription, web hosting, equipment, software, music licensure, etc., etc., etc. The podcast takes me hours and hours and hours each week to make happen, and I believe creators like us should own the full value of our creative work. The current creative system doesn't allow for that. Patreon provides me with direct, ongoing support from you, our awesome listeners, so that I can foster and spend my time creating and bringing community closer together. If you too would like to support the show, please head over to patreon.com forward slash f-stop and listen. Okay, let's get to the show. All right, Michael Bonacore, it's awesome to have you, man. Hey, thanks, Matt Payne. Appreciate it, man. It's good <laughs> to be here. How many years later we've been talking wow, about I this? Know. Gosh, I feel like I at least reached out to you maybe, what, two years, three years ago now? When did you start the podcast? Uh, April 2017. Yeah, so I think we talked like literally summer of 2017 and we were like yeah <laughs> we right. should do this and, and it just life happened man and then covid hit and then yeah i pretty much haven't come out of my my bubble since then so uh which really in hindsight would have been a great time for us to do this but <laughs> right you know yeah it's funny when covid hit i had all, all this all of a sudden all these people wanted to do podcasts <laughs> yeah <laughs> like i'm going crazy in here man Get, i need something to do yeah, right. I want uh, to talk to somebody. <laughs> I know, right? I'm sick of talking yeah. to my dog. My dog never responds to me. Right. Yeah. I got to talk to a human. <laughs> yeah. Well, cool, man. So for people that are not familiar with you, which I guess is probably like two people living under a rock in Alaska, uh, <laughs> uh, tell us uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, sure, man. I, I wish it was just two people, but um, no, it's unfortunately a lot more than two people don't know about me. Um, but yeah, my name is Michael Bonacore. I'm a travel photographer and filmmaker, and I'm based in Boise, Idaho which don't tell anyone because cut that part out because we don't want anyone knowing that Idaho is amazing because we can't handle any more people moving here. Yeah. Well, I mean, Idaho's pretty sweet because cost of living is lower ish. It was, right? it was <laughs> right. <laughs> Not anymore. Uh, right. Um, you have mountains and you have breweries and you have, you know, it's not a bad place. It's, um, it's a terrible place, Matt. <laughs> Let's get that out of the way right now. It's a terrible place. Nobody come here. No, I'm just right. It's it's an amazing place. I love it here. And unfortunately, the secret's already out. Um, Right. And that's funny because, yeah, so I'm a travel photographer, but that's funny because, um, you know, the the influx of tourism and people moving to Idaho has definitely affected my lifestyle. Right. I can't get the same campsites I used to get. I used to be able to um, walk into my favorite campsites, no problem. Now it's like, I mean, no way. I can't get those campsites. 
And I'm like, man, all these people. And then uh, Monday morning, I go to work and I'm photographing uh, tons of content for the tourism board. And so, and so every night I go to bed and I'm like, wait, I'm one of the guys helping to bring all these people here. Yet I'm bummed about all the people here because I can't get my favorite campsite. And it's kind of like that vicious cycle, man. It keeps keeps yeah. keeps occurring. But you know what? I got to make money too. So. Yeah, it's interesting. I feel like a lot of us photographers um, battle that particular conundrum of showcasing some of our favorite places and putting them on the map, but then the inevitable side effect that people want to go see that place too. And, uh, you know, like there's pros and cons to that, right? Like if you if you get to know a place and you love a place, you're going to want to protect that place and you're going to want to invest resources to make it a place that other people can visit too. But at the same time, you're making it a worse experience, the more people they go. So it's a tough one. Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a conundrum, man. Actually, that brings up a good question. I want to know what you think about this. Do you geotag your photos? Oh man, we've, (laughs) we've, we've, we've covered this one. I mean, I mean, I helped create uh, nature first photography and one of our principles is to share, you know, use discretion when sharing locations. So when it comes to geotagging, I use like general, like Colorado or, yeah, you know, I'm, or sometimes I'll just use like a really stupid fake one. Like my favorite one is whenever I post a photo in the desert, I just use uh Southwest desert zombie free zone. <laughs> uh, just cause I gotta, you know. I'm going to the desert this week. So yeah, you should I'm use that to- one. I'm going to have to start using that, that, uh, geotag. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think we've seen that by and large, I think the, the destructive nature of geotagging outweighs any benefits that it possibly brings. At least that's my opinion. Yeah. I completely agree with that. I, I was, um, a big geo, not a big geotagger, but I didn't have a problem with geotagging, uh, years ago. And then over the course of the last couple of years, um, I've definitely limited uh, any kind of geotagging unless it's like, um, you know, the Idaho State Capitol. Like that's pretty easy to find. Right. Um, right. But or like, yeah, for, you know, half, you know, like a uh, tunnel view, like everyone knows where tunnel view is. Yeah, right? exactly. Uh, but I mean, if it's like a, a pristine waterfall, that's like a two mile hike from a highway, maybe don't tag it because you're yep. going to have hundreds of people going to that place and it's going to forever ruin that experience for everyone else. So. Well, and also, yeah, and also something that we've lost in the age of social media is talking, right? And so I remember back in the day before Instagram, before Facebook, you know, when I would travel, you know how I would find locations? Hey, call your buddy up. (laughs) Or I would talk to the locals, right? I would talk to the locals. I would find, you know, I'd go to the bar or, you know, just I would talk to people and I would tell them what I'm doing, what I'm looking for. And, you know, you, you establish that connection with someone that trust. And then all of a sudden they're telling you, Hey man, look, I've, I've got this great hot spring that no one knows about. If you go there, just please don't tell anybody it's there, but I like you. So here's a GPS coordinates, you know, or something like that. Right. right. And that would happen all the time, you know, and, and now with the age of social media and easy information, people are losing that art. People aren't talking to the locals or working to find those locations, right? Everything's so easy to access and people just take advantage of that. And, you know, it's there's something to be said about working hard to find that special location. If it doesn't come easy, the reward is 10 times better. And so I do wish we kind of had that mentality these days, but yeah. you know, unfortunately, most people just 
do a quick Google search and um, yeah, and they're off to the races. Yeah. And I agree with you. I mean, it, the harder you have to do research or work for something, I feel like the more you value it. Yes. And therefore, when you get there, you're probably not just going to leave your stuff everywhere and, you yep. know, carve your name in the tree and all that kind of stuff. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, it is exactly. tough, though, because, I mean, the you know, the social media thing, like on Instagram and geotagging and, you know, people DMing you like, hey, where's this at and all that kind of stuff. I mean, it's playing on the same social animal things that you and I are talking about. Like, we want to share and help others um as humans like that's why we have done so well evolutionarily speaking because we're <laughs> <laughs> we help each other you know exactly um the problem is is that social media the exponential factor of social media where you have someone who shares it and then another person who shares it and then it just becomes this cascading effect where hundreds of thousands of people know where this location is and now instead of it being like you had to go into a bar and ask somebody about it now it's just like, oh, you click on a geotag and you go there, you exactly. know? Yeah. And I think the other, you know, the other, I think, um, art that has been lost in all this social media is that, and, and don't get me wrong. I love social media. I owe so much of my career and my, my life and my happiness now to social media, but I'm, I, I don't have my head buried in the sand, you know, like I see the negative side effects and, and one of the other negative side effects that, you know, just drives me crazy is that people don't appreciate some of these locations as much as they should, because they literally see a photo on Instagram and all they want to do is go recreate that photo so they can post it. Right. And so their their mindset going into it is, oh, I've got to rush there and I've got to get that photo. And, and you know, and that's all that consumes them. You know, it's just getting that photo, getting that photo, getting that photo. And then before you know it, it's dark out, sunsets passed, and you've missed an opportunity to really be one um, with nature, be one with a location and really like appreciate what you have found and what you've experienced. And, you know, all too often these days, it, it just doesn't work out that way because people are so hyper-focused on getting the shot, getting the content, posting the mm -hmm. Instagram. And that's... that's yeah, it. I agree. I mean, I, um, I'm, I'm actually... Uh, here in a couple of days, leaving for Death Valley. I know you are too. Um, we're missing we're each other by like two days. I know it's too bad, but you know I'm going to be there for I don't know like ten, eleven days, and I'm fully planning on having multiple days where I probably may not even take a good photo. You know, like I'm just wanting to really experience that place and and just you know have a connection to it. And I think that's a different mindset. But I also I don't know about you, Michael, but I think it also leads to better photography. When you have a, you know, more of a special connection to the place and you're not there just to, you know, I hate to say this, but you're not commoditizing nature, you know, you're not, exactly. uh, your goal isn't to just capture that image and that banger photo and yeah. post it on Instagram and move on to the next place. Like your goal is to have a, a special connection to place. And I think, I don't know about you, I can, I can tell when a photographer is doing that versus the other, you know what I mean? It comes down to passion, right? So it's hard to really, you know, with photography and, and video, right? Our work really excels when we're passionate about something, right? And so yeah. when you're kind of doing that shoot that you really don't care about, you know, I have a, a lot of those happening these days in the days of COVID. I've, I've had to do some, some other work to kind of uh, make ends sure. meet. Um, but when you are really passionate about something, about a place or about a project, um, that translates into your art, that translates into your photography and your video. 
And if you're not passionate about it, it shows. Like like you said, uh, you can see it. I can see it. Like you can tell when somebody really cares about a place from their from their from their art that they generated from there. And if you're not taking the time to you know breathe it all in and really you know enjoy and appreciate where you are, you're you're not going to get that passion. You're not going to get that fire, and and that translates into your art and. Yeah. And yeah, it's unfortunately it, it doesn't happen um, you know, as often these days where where we're, you know, people are just so passionate about about their projects, but um, you know, once you find it, once you find that passion, man, it translates. I agree. All right, man. Well, that was a that was a fun little side side conversation. Um, <laughs> but it was I th- I feel like that was good though. I really want to uh so I really want to dive into the the story of Michael Bonacore, you know. I feel like the story, like the, you know, you're like a you're like a Disney movie, man. <laughs> I, feel, I feel like I've known your name, you know, in photography since I was in it starting in 2010. Um, I'm wondering if it was like from Google Plus or social media. I don't even know, but I think there's an interesting uh, story to be told here, and would love to hear you talk about kind of your start and your eventual rise in photography. <laughs> My rise to the top yeah. of the food chain, man. That's where I'm at these days. Yeah, like, yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> hardly, hardly. Believe me. Me and my my sixteen point five thousand Instagram followers are not at the top of the food chain. But um, but yeah, I've worked hard to get where I am. And um, uh, you know, my my story started back in two thousand seven. And ironically, it's you know for the amount of travel I do now, you know, you look at my Instagram feed, it's Jordan and Morocco and Thailand and Cambodia and you know Uganda and Tanzania everywhere right and I've been to almost 50 countries now I think and you know it's people look at that and they go man this guy has just been traveling nonstop since he came out of the womb like you know man this guy and that it, nothing is further from the truth right I didn't get my first passport until I was 27 years old I never left the country, um, didn't even go to Mexico for a booze cruise or anything like that, right? Like I never left the United States border until I was 27 years old. And uh, that was in 2007. And so in 2007, um, I, on a whim, booked a trip to Costa Rica, my first trip out of the country. I went and got my passport and I was Googling um, locations in Costa Rica to go visit, right? And so I found a photo of the Arenal volcano and I was like, man, that's a beautiful photo. Um, and it was an HDR photo, you know, back in those of 2007 course. photomatic HDR photos, you know, Trey, Trey Ratcliffe. It was Trey Ratcliffe's photo, um, as, <laughs> as a matter of fact. And so it was Trey Ratcliffe's photo and uh, I saw that and I'm like, man, that is such a cool photo. Like I want to take photos like that. Right. And so I started to do a deep dive at the time. There wasn't a lot of information online about how to be a photographer. Right. Not like obviously there is today. That's true. There really wasn't. (laughs) There really wasn't. Like it was not an easy thing to just Google, you know, to get advice or lessons or anything like that. So I there was no no YouTube. No, there was no YouTube. I mean, it was, yeah, it was a mess back then. And and so um, I didn't know what a shutter speed was. I didn't know what an aperture was. I didn't, I didn't know anything, right? But I knew I wanted to take photos like that. And so I deep dove into Trey's content, into other content that I could find. And I found out how to create HDR photographs, right? I'm oh, like, yeah, oh, baby. cool, HDR. Like, I'm going to do this HDR photograph thing. And 
Uh, I brought with me to Costa Rica a Canon point-and-shoot camera, like literally a pocket camera. I think it was two megapixels. Didn't have a tripod. I learned how to bracket on it, um, whatever bracketing looked like back then. But I somehow was able to take different exposures. Um, I taught myself that. And so I'd put my camera on a tree stump or, uh, you know, on a table and I would use that as my tripod and I would take five exposures and I would, and I got home after three weeks in Costa Rica and I started editing these HDR photos. And I, I mean, I threw them into photomatics and I went full on bake. I mean, I baked the hell out of those images, right? I I, uh, I, I did the same stuff, man. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, we all did. Right. And so I baked the hell out of those images and you know what? I thought they were cool. And I was like, man, these are so cool. And I posted one or two on Facebook and people were like, man, that is so beautiful. That's so cool. And I'm like, I'm the greatest photographer ever, you know, just with this point and shoot camera. And, uh, Yeah, looking back all these years later, um, I still have a couple of those Costa Rica images. Um, Costa Rica, my first trip to Europe, which was legendary, going with a bunch of buddies um, on a drinking binge through Europe for a couple of weeks. But I took a lot of photos there. It was. It was really fun. Um, (laughs) But I took a lot of photos there, Costa Rica, Europe, I think maybe one other country. And that was before the days of easy online backup or external hard drives, all that kind of stuff. And um, I did have one external hard drive and, you know, I never backed it up and the hard drive just crashed. Oof. And so I lost all those images. There's still a couple on my Flickr account, a couple on my Facebook. I had a lot on my MySpace, but Justin Timberlake <laughs> took that down. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And then, you know, um, I thought they were cool. Turns out they weren't that good. Um, but yeah, that kind of started the journey of photography. So I kept going uh, with that mindset with my point shoot camera. Eventually in 2009, I upgraded to a Canon Rebel uh, XTI, I think. Hardcore, and, um, baby. Yeah. yeah, man. Had that kit lens. It was awesome. Hell yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and yeah, and then I started slowly getting better, you know, started slowly learning composition, how to edit, um, you know, all that good kind of stuff. And, um, you know, obviously still learning to this day, all these years later, you're still learning how to be a better photographer. Um, yeah. And then Google plus came around. I was, uh, big into Google plus into, uh, meeting people, you know, I'm a social butterfly, so to speak. And so, um, so yeah, I'd go on all the photo walks. I would network, I would meet people. And, um, one photo walk really kind of put everything into gear for me. Um, I went to death Valley with a guy named Thomas Hawk, a really awesome, uh, kind of, you know, everyday street, you know, real life photographer, Americana photographer, huge, huge, uh, Flickr evangelist. Yes. He's Mr. Flickr. They call him. Yes. Uh, Flickr Hawk as he's otherwise known. He posts like a billion photos on Flickr a day. I feel like it's, it's incredible, man. That guy is just, yeah. Um, And yeah, so he organized kind of like a Death Valley photo walk, like a weekend in Death Valley. And I think maybe 50 or 60 people went down there and we just ran around adventuring. And I met some really awesome friends that I still have to this day. And, um, you know, that experience really set the motion of, you know, networking and learning how to, you know, promote myself and, and, uh, you know, all that kind of stuff like started on that trip. And then, yeah, it just kept cascading, uh, through the years. I shot weddings originally to make money. Um, I quit my, I quit my very good job in software because everyone told me they would buy prints of my crappy photographs that were super overbaked. 
And everyone goes, man, I would totally buy a print of that. So I say, you know what? I'm going to start a smug mug site and I'm going to sell prints and I'm going to quit my job because I'm going to make $100,000 a year in print sales and be a full-time photographer. So I quit my job, started a smug mug site and all those friends that told me they were going to buy a print, you know how many bought one? Two. Zero. Zero. None. No one bought a print. <laughs> and so, uh, yeah, man, I it was a rude awakening. I quit a, a good job and uh, thought I was going to make money off print sales. And um, I learned the hard way that you can't really make a living off print sales. So started shooting weddings and all that uh, fun stuff that I hate and uh, started slowly making an income. And um, the rest just kind of started to come together, uh, especially when I got hired at Smug Mug randomly. Yeah, let's talk. Let's talk about that. How the heck did that happen? Um, that yeah, that's a that's a crazy story. So I was a Smug Mug customer, and um, they did a price increase. I can't even remember the year. Uh, I feel like I was, remember that it was maybe like in like 2013 or something. I think so. That sounds about right. Yeah. So they did a price increase, and I'm pretty sure they like literally doubled their price overnight. Um, which, you know, in hindsight probably wasn't the best move, but I felt their product was worth more than they were charging to begin with. And so they doubled their price seemingly overnight and it created a massive backlash on social media. Uh, Facebook, everyone was just up in arms. How the, you know, how dare they do this? You know, blah, blah, blah. So um, I went on Facebook and I kind of laid out an argument why I thought it was a fair uh, price increase and capitalism, all that kind of stuff. Like, if you don't like it, cancel your subscription. Like, it's that yeah. simple. Like, what are you going to do? Go to Zenfolio? Yeah, exactly. And Back so uh, I can't remember. I should find that. That um, I should find that. I, I really want to read what I wrote again. But, um, but yeah, so I posted it. I tagged Smug Mug in it and a woman named Catherine who was in the marketing department, just reached out to me and said, hey, we just wanted to thank you. That was a really nice Facebook post you put out there. Uh, we would love to have you come in the office for lunch. Um, and I was like, yeah, cool. Like smug mug. Like, you know, Sweet. at the time it was like the cool place, you know, to be like their, their company headshots were superheroes. You know, everyone dressed up as a superhero for their company headshot. And, you know, I knew they had like a kitchen where they cook lunch and everything. So I was like, yeah, for sure. So I drove down there, got a tour, had lunch with them. In they the were super, Bay Area, is that right? Yeah, Mountain View, California. Mm -hmm. I was living in the Bay Area at the time. And um, yeah, drove down there, had lunch, did the whole tour and everything like that. And we just kind of hit it off. Two weeks later, they offered me a job in their marketing department, <laughs> just like literally out of nowhere. I was like, all right, like, sure. They're like, you know what? We really need like a social butterfly. Like, and you seem like the kind of guy that can do that. I'm like, yeah, bring it on. So uh, they they hired me in their marketing department as their social butterfly. That was technically my job title. And I have a smug mug hoodie, the famed smug mug hoodie that we're always so hard to get. I've got one with a custom embroidery that says social butterfly with a little butterfly on it. And, uh, and yeah, and that was, uh, <laughs> that was random and awesome. At the same time, I had a great, I think I was there three years with and you smug were mug. VIP manager. So like, I'm assuming yeah. that gave you access to like all kinds of people in the industry, right? Yeah. So my job was to basically find VIP photographers and sign them up on Smug Mug, help them build their out their website, get their price list set, all that, you know, behind the scenes work. Um, obviously to help promote Smug Mug, but obviously also Smug Mug makes a commission off print sales. So if you're bringing in a big name photographer, like one of my first and probably biggest catches was Chris Burkhard. 
and um, you know, bring him in. And that guy, Jen, that guy can make a living off print sales, by the way. Right. <laughs> so it's not, it's not impossible because Chris Burkhardt can do it, but, um, but yeah, you, you know, and it's, it's obviously income for smug mug uh, income for the photographer. And uh, that was my job to bring in those VIP photographers and, um, and that got my foot in the door with obviously so many, you know, big name, quote unquote, big name photographers. Uh, and then I would go to all the trade shows like WPPI, uh, Photo Plus in New York. I would go to all those trade shows and basically schmooze. Like my job was to schmooze. My job was to know everyone, you know, behind the lens uh, and in the industry. So all the people that worked at Sony or Canon or Nikon or you know, G technologies, whatever the case may be. My job was to just know everyone. And, um, and that's wow. what I did. And and that started the, the long list of connections I have that, you know, obviously years down the road, I still talk to and we still do projects together and, and um, I still work for um, in, you know, in a sense for some of these companies. So um, yeah. Yeah. I feel like I guess the lesson in all that is that being a successful photographer is much harder as an introvert, you know, yeah. like you can be, you can be an introvert behind the camera, but you know, it's a really hard industry, especially now with how saturated it is. It's really hard industry to, to break into on the client side. If you're an introvert, you know, you've really got to be out there. Your face has to be in front of everyone constantly um, and, and yeah, you got to keep your name on people's, people's lips. Yeah. It's, it's interesting because <clears throat> that's something I've said along all, many times over the years is like you, being a good photographer simply is not enough to, to make it as a full-time. I mean, I'm not even a full-time photographer myself, but, um, I feel like the quality of your work is secondary to your ability to make connections and market yourself and, and like have relationships and build those relationships. And um, like you said, make it to where people have your name in the back of their mind at all times. Yeah, exactly. It's um, yeah, it's not a, it's not an easy job for the introverts. And um, luckily I'm, I'm, I'm an extroverted introvert. I, I, I like to think, um, where I can get into any, you know, public setting with any group of people and I can easily make friends and be social. Um, but on the flip side, I have no problem sitting in my house and being alone for a month straight, just working. Um, you know, uh, I have no problem with that. Like I don't need the social aspect to refuel me and I don't need to be alone and have that introvert aside to refuel me. It's I'm the same I, way. I'm, <laughs> I'm, yeah. I'm luckily I've got the best of both worlds. And so, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's been a, a fun adventure, uh, to this point. You know, you're probably more well known as a travel photographer and I'm curious kind of in your mind, what differentiates that from landscape photography? Um, you know, as much as I love landscape photography, landscapes don't move, right? That same mountain's always going to be there, you know, the same lake, the same river, like, you know, it's it's always going to be there, right? Like the weather and the conditions are going to change. And, you know, believe me, I know landscape photography is not easy because I dabble in it quite often, um, but it's not exactly hard for others to kind of recreate those images as well, because again, it's, it's all static environments. Right. Um, and I just feel like travel photography is a little more detailed, right? Uh, for me, it's like, it's more about the story, uh, behind the actual, behind the location, um, as opposed to just the one banger shot, right? 
Like, so I, I really love stories, right? Whether they're like written stories, film, spoken word. Um, I just, I love stories and, and especially photography stories. Like I just love photo stories because to me, they leave so much interpretation up to the viewer, right? Like in a movie, you kind of get a feeling for someone's personality or they literally look into the camera and they tell you their story. They tell you their history, uh, which is great. But, you know, a photograph just leaves all that interpretation to the viewer. And like, you know, it's like you look at a photo, you're like, wow, you know, that person, you know, it's a beautiful portrait. Like, I wonder what kind of accent they have or how does this person make a living or what is their family like? What were they doing immediately before and after that photograph? Like, you know, there's so many questions that are left up to interpretation that just, I love that kind of storytelling aspect. I love mystery. And like, you know, like what is the the other 23 hours, 59 minutes and 57 seconds of that person's look like uh, day-to-day life look like outside of this photograph. Like I, I just, I'm addicted to that. And so for me, that's what my attraction to travel photography is. And I think that's where the difference is. You know, it's, it's more of a behind the scenes kind of view of, you know, especially in travel, some of these, you know, very photographed places, you know, it's like when I go to Jordan, right? I love Jordan. It's a fascinating, incredible country. Um, and when I go to Jordan, one of our uh, locations that we go to with the Giving Lens on our workshops is um, is Petra, obviously, right? Jordan is known for Petra. It's one of the most famous places in the world. Is that um, that? Is that that scene with all the candles and? Yep, exactly. Yeah, okay, Night, yeah. Night at the Petra, also made famous by Indiana Jones in the Last Crusade. Gotcha. That's where they find the uh, Holy Grail. They find that in the treasury at Petra. Uh, and so Petra is an incredible, fascinating place. Um, you know, but once I go there and I get those postcard shots of the treasury and the monastery, I like to quickly turn my lens on the, the Bedouin people, right. Who live and work at this incredible location, because for me, you know, them and their ancestors are really the heart and soul of Petra. Uh, and you know, those are the stories that I love to tell. And, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of, you know, it's, it's kind of a mixed bag of like landscape and showing the, the locations you're at. Sure. But there's so much more to traveling than just that one Instagram photo of the treasury of Petra. There's so much more to it. And there's so much more culture and history and just incredible connections to be had if you just talk to people and if you just kind of think outside the box and, you know, uh, be an extrovert, <laughs> you know, yeah. I got to put my extrovert hat on for that role. Um, but to right. me, that's really like, that's my passion in photography. I love telling those stories and there are stories that, you know, on, on a, um, on a selfish side as well, like there's stories that not everyone has, right? So everyone's got a picture of Petra, of, of the treasury of Petra. Everyone's got a picture of the monastery, but people don't have pictures of, you know, the, the people that make that place what it is. And, uh, you know, the fascinating, you know, lives that these people live. Look at humans in New York, you know, like right. humans in New York is a massive photographer, and I think his name is Brandon. I was um, going to say, I don't know his name, but I was. I think I'm, his everyone... name is Brandon. I'm pretty sure his name is Brandon. But the thing that fascinates me about humans in New York is he is not, a, I mean, he's not a technically very, you know, skilled photographer. Like he takes 
just kind of generic snapshots of people. Right. 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 But his stories that, you know, come along with those experiences make those photos just like mind blowing. Cause you're reading these stories and you're right. looking at this person. And to me, that's, that's the beauty of photography. You know, it's, it's being able to connect those two worlds, you know, um, storytelling and, and beautiful visuals. And I think that's kind of what travel photography for me uh, really encompasses, especially as opposed to landscape photography. That makes a lot of sense. I feel like for a lot of people getting into photography, you know, there's a photography in general, I feel like is one of those kind of quote unquote hobbies that a lot of people get into. They quickly master it or feel like they've kind of figured it out. And then, you know, they reach a point where things kind of flatten out and then uh, they either dig even deeper or they just kind of give it up because it's not fulfilling in some way. And I think what's often missing for people, whether it be travel photography or landscape photography or whatever, is that there's not this like end thing that they're doing with the work. And so mm -hmm. I'm curious for you as a travel photographer, um, what is that kind of thing that keeps you motivated to producing, to create that work? And then like, what are you doing with it and what do you want uh, the outcome of that work to be? You know, it really just comes down to, um, I don't want to say education, uh, cause it's not education, so to speak, but just, um, storytelling, right. Yeah. I just love, you know, when people, uh, you know, really just, you know, are enthralled by a specific story I'm trying to tell. Um, you know, like I have, uh, I went to Mongolia right before COVID, I think, you know, September, right before COVID. Um, and y that country is first of all, incredible. But when I was there, I met a 13 year old Eagle Huntress. Mm -hmm. And so, <laughs> you know, an Eagle Hunter, for those that don't know in Mongolia, they're 99.9% .9 men. Uh, and they literally have a giant Eagle that sits on their arm all day. And they go out into the wilderness and they teach that eagle how to hunt for foxes, rabbits, um, you know, whatever the eagle can get. Uh, and, you know, that's a fascinating thing to me. Like, you know, obviously this day and age, it's not as necessary because, you know, it's easier for them to get food. And obviously it's not, you know, as remote as it used to be, you know, but to think of the history that that this you know, um, that this culture had in, they literally survived off of an eagle hunting for, for them, you know, like it's just <laughs> so fascinating. Right. That's and a pretty so, cool story. <laughs> yeah. Like that itself is cool. Right. Right. But then I'm in Mongolia and I meet, uh, this 13 year old eagle huntress. And so she's a 13 year old, uh, young lady and she has her eagle that she has trained to hunt and to compete in the competitions. They have um, a couple big competitions a year that they literally compete against other eagle hunters and, and they get paid, you know, a prize if they place in the top three. Uh, and of course people go and watch these festivals and uh, photograph them. And they're, they're really incredible to witness. Um, but she is 13. And so I went to this n remote eagle festival where, I was maybe one of 10, you know, tourists, uh, you know, it was just me and a couple British people and that was it, you know? Right. And, uh, actually this was documented for DP review for a video. So oh, cool. you can, yeah, if you go on my website, search Mongolia or Eagle Huntress, you can watch a video and see the photos and everything. But, uh, she is, 
she was obviously the only woman in the competition. And on top of that, she's only 13, right? And so you look around at all the, you know, her, her peers that she's competing against, and they're all 20, 30, 40, 60 year old men who have been doing this their entire lives. Right. Um, and without spoiling it, well, I guess, eh, screw it. I'll spoil it. At the end of the two day competition out of, I think there was 40 eagle hunters in this comp- in this festival competition, she placed third. So wow, that's awesome. I mean, that is the type of story that just like blows my mind. And I'm just so fascinated with it. And I can't wait to just document it and tell that story. Like how many people, you know, know that there's this 13 year old eagle huntress in Mongolia competing against grown men and kicking their butts, you know, like it's, it's a story that people don't, um, that they don't know they wouldn't think is, is happening. And so, you know, it's not really education. It's just kind of, uh, informative, right. I just want to tell people these stories and, um, and that's, it's interesting because when I think most people look at those Mongolia eagle hunter photos, it, mm-hmm. it's like kind of a kitschy cliche type thing where like tourists pay money to go there to kind of photograph this setup scene of someone dressed up in this traditional clothing and all that stuff. But your your approach is more about telling a story about what's happening in that culture, which I think is two very different approaches to photography. But also I'm curious, like how, like this sounds kind of a silly question, but how do you tell that story through, through photos? Like what is your approach to doing that? Yeah. So it, it gets hard, man. It's like, <laughs> you know, I love those, those photo stories. Um, but sometimes they're just, they're so in depth and so complicated and, and so important that photos can't do it justice. Right. And so, right. right. You know, so for that one, obviously, there was a very long uh, written story that I produced with it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I could tell the story decently through just the photographs, but you'd be missing a lot of context, right? right. Like, you wouldn't know she's the only 13 year old eagle huntress in Mongolia. Like, you wouldn't know that just by looking at the photos. You would be able to tell she's young. You'd be able to tell that she's an eagle huntress. You could see that she's in the competition. But you you just wouldn't have all those, um, you know, details that really make the story uh, fascinating and, and interesting. Um, and so so it is hard to just, you know, tell that story through photographs. And that's why I always recommend, you know, I get contacted a lot by, you know, upcoming, you know, you know, newer travel photographers who are just kind of getting into it and they go, how do I take good photographs or how do I, you know, how do I get my photos shared and et cetera, et cetera. And I, I always tell them the same answer. Like, it's not about the photos. It's about the storytelling. Yeah. And so if you can't just tell a photo, uh, if you can't just tell a story through the photos, you need to learn how to be an incredible writer. You need to learn how to make films. Um, you need to be the triple threat of content creation in the travel industry. You need to be able to write, you need to be able to photograph, and you need to be able to make films. Um, you know, and because you're going to run into that time when you're in Mongolia with a 13 year old eagle huntress who's, you know, whipping, you know, grown men's butts, and you're going to need to tell that story. And if you don't know how to write that story, it's not going to translate as well. Right. And you need to also, I guess, have an understanding of, what type of image would go well with the story you're trying to tell. Correct. Whereas I feel like most people would probably try to do it the other way around, right? Like take interesting photos and then write some kind of story, which might not work. (laughs) Yeah. 
Yeah, you kind of have to go in with a with a game plan, right? Like, yeah, you have to know, like, you have to, and, and it follows the same the same formula as movies, or you know, it, you got to have a beginning, a middle, and an end. You've got to be able to set the stage, you've got to be able to show the details, and you've got to be able to close it out, right? And you know, for that, like, literally, if I was putting a photo story together with, the, so one thing I always try to um, teach people or give them instructions uh, or an assignment, so to speak, if, if I'm kind of mentoring someone in this, in this world is that tell me a story with five photos Mm. and the first photo has to be the beginning setting the stage. The next three photos have to be the middle, the details about what's happening and the end has to be the the closer, right? Um, and so, if you can tell a story with just five photographs, then you've got that process in your head. You've you know how to do that. You know how to craft it because anybody, you know, can create a story out of five hundred photos, right? <laughs> like, just keep posting, you know, keep keep adding these photos, and and obviously the story comes through a lot, you know, more detailed. But if you can tell a story with just five photographs, then you're really onto something. And so that's one thing I, I like to teach and advise people is that work on your your photo telling stories um, your, or, you know, your stories uh, with photos with just five photos. And, you know, that beginning shot is literally setting the stage. Give me a wide scene of what we're looking at, where we are, who the main subject is, but not just the main subject. Show me the main subject in the in the, the scene as a whole. The three details, you know, for her, it's her with the eagle on her arm or her, you know, um, you know, um, you know, getting dressed for the competition, those kind of things, you know, it's, that's the details. And then the final shot, I want a shot of her and her eagle hunter uh, mentor, her eagle master. I want a shot of them riding out into the sunset, um, you know, with her holding her, her little trophy that she wanted the competition or something like that, you know, um, and learning how to craft those stories, um, you know, in, in five photos or less is really helpful to, to kind of getting this industry down, so to speak. Yeah. I'm, I know, I know you've sent me a lot of links of like stories and films or little mini projects that you've kind of worked on and brought into fruition, kind of using some of these techniques that you've been talking about. And I was a little curious about um, how you transitioned into that world from being, you know, the VIP person at Smug Mug and then being more of this person that's working on project deliverables for tourism boards or for for other, um, you know, big name partner, like you said, DP Review. And I think you had mentioned earlier, like you did a film for Smug Mug and Chris Burkhardt and stuff like mm-hmm. that. So I'm curious, like, how did that transition happen? Um, it it, it kind of came, you know, it, it, it was long. It, it didn't happen <laughs> overnight. Right? right. But my love for, so again, we talked about the passion before, right? So you have to be passionate about what you're doing to really translate the emotion in your stories, whether it's photos, writing, or video, you have to have that passion. And I found that passion back in those smug mug days, right around then um, I started uh, leading workshops for the giving lens with uh, my buddy Colby Brown. So Colby Brown started a company called The Giving Lens, and he hired me on as a tour leader. And I didn't really know what it was going to be about. Um, I my travel photography wasn't exactly up to par at the time. You know, I think I just had pretty much Costa Rica under my belt and and Europe, and we know how those trips went. Uh, and then 
I, I started leading, I started going with Colby to these remote, you know, destinations. Our first trip was Peru and then uh, Nicaragua. And when we got to those locations, we spent the first couple of days working with a local nonprofit organization, and they're all based around um, children, so children's education. And what we did was we brought donated cameras that we got from the U.S. or you know Canada or wherever the people were coming from. We got donated cameras. We brought them down to these kids, and we literally taught them photography, the ABCs of photography um, from beginning, you know, the day we got there, just dove right in. And we would stay with them for four or five days and and help hone their photography skills, learn how to take photographs, learn how to uh, tell a story through their photographs, especially because they come from a very different lifestyle, right? And so they need this outlet to kind of tell what they're experiencing and, and their emotions and, and their lives. Um, and the the feedback was incredible from these kids. And that really just like put that passion into my soul for storytelling and traveling. And, you know, I didn't have that same passion before I, you know, I just didn't have it. Um, And when that happened, you know, my whole mindset changed and I focused more on being a storyteller as opposed to a photographer. And I think nowadays how that translated into work is that brands are waking up right? Like they don't need just a guy with, you know, a hundred thousand Instagram followers to come to their location, take a couple pictures, upload them to Instagram, you know, and get a free trip out of it. Like they don't need that. They don't want that anymore. You know, they could get that a dime a dozen from anyone. What they want is real stories about the the locations and the people that, that, you know, make the place special. And, they're starting to wake up to that. And so, you know, when I started working with tourism boards and travel brands, I always focus my pitches on storytelling. I'm not going to come there with, you know, a hundred thousand Instagram followers and just post a couple photos to promote your location. I'm going to tell really good, meaningful stories to my 16,000 followers. And you're going to love it because it's going to be a great story that you're not going to get anywhere else. And I started crafting that message and it really resonated with, with brands and, and they really loved it. And they started, luckily, thanks to my connections that I've been able to establish over the indus- uh, over the years in the industry, um, you know, it's just kind of worked out. But you have to approach brands, tourism boards, you have to approach them with something different, mm-hmm. right? Like this day, the market's oversaturated. Any, you know, Joe, Dick and Tom can go to them and say, I'll take pictures of your location, post them on Instagram and give you free promotion. Anybody can do that. You have to go to them with something different, something interesting, something engaging, and something that they can literally share and be proud of. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, it's funny because like from the outside, right? This Mm -hmm. isn't about you, but I mean, in general, like it from the outside, it seems like that's what a lot of photographers are doing is like, they're just randomly being selected by brands to go take photos for them. And, Mm -hmm. and and, you know, from the outside, you're like, wow, the the photos aren't that good. And like the only reason they like that person is because they have a huge following on Instagram or whatever. So it's really good to hear that that is not necessarily going to win every time anymore. No, I wholeheartedly believe it because I've seen it, right? Like my whole, my whole sales pitch when I'm working with brands is that I'm not the Instagram guy who's going to come in and take a couple photos, post them on Instagram and leave. 
You know, like that's not what you're getting with me. What you're getting with me is real stories that you are going to be proud to share. Um, and you know, I, and I think brands have woken up to that over the, the last couple of years. You know, that's not to say that they're not still going to give, they're not still going to work with those big hundred thousand, two hundred thousand dollar Instagram photographers, because guess what? It's kind of cheap for them to put a trip together for an Instagram photographer. If they're not paying that Instagram photographer, which a lot of these, you know, a lot, some photographers will do, they'll just basically trade promotion and photos for a free trip. And the ROI for the tourism boards, you know, it's pretty good because it doesn't cost them a lot to kind of put a photographer up for a week in a location and just have them, you know, photograph uh, whatever. And so they're still going to do that. But in my opinion, if you don't have that massive following of 3 million people where you can be like, I'm literally just going to promote you on Instagram now pay me $50,000. Like <laughs> that's not going to work, right? Like you need to come in with something original, something unique and something that they can be proud of if you really want to get paid what you're worth for that project. Well, not only that, but maybe this is just me, but I personally would much rather want to be known for someone who's telling a story and providing value and like actually having to put a little bit of work into telling a compelling story through photography um, versus someone who just like, oh, I have a million followers, so I'm just going to create a story with your brand in it. Like, that's just, you know what I mean? Like, I don't know. Like, to me, it's, I don't want to be known as that influencer no. guy, right? You know what I mean? Yeah. And neither do I. And and it's, it's, it's okay if that's what people are. Like, I sure. do not, yeah, I do not. You know, I do not uh, speak ill of anyone, especially if you are making a living doing what you love. If you're making a living doing what you love, by I mean, good for you. I am stoked for you. That is awesome. Um, you know, and you know, but that's just not my cup of tea, right? I don't want to be that totally. Instagram photographer who goes in and, and does that. I want to be a storyteller who gets really into the weeds and tells something unique. Um, and, and interesting that, um, that the tourism boards or brands that I'm working for will love and be proud of. And, and yeah. so that's just not, you know, that's me. The other, the other side isn't me, but you know, no, you know, no ill feelings towards those people. Like they're, they're just doing what they need to do, but that's just not going to be me. No, I, I, I get that. I'm just thinking from like a personal satisfaction perspective, you know, like oh, yeah. cre- creating something of value that you're proud of feels, I don't know, that feels like worthwhile and something. Well, it's just, <laughs> exactly. And it goes back to what we were talking about before, about really engaging in the moments that you're experiencing in these locations, right? Right, right, It's right. the same concept. You know, if you're just running and taking photos for the sake of the job, then you're missing out on what makes this job so special, right? And so, you know, it's, it's, you've got to, be passionate about it. You've got to be proud of what you're putting out there um, and um, and not forget why you're there and how lucky you are to be there and just take a moment and appreciate that and then get to work. Yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit more about uh, the giving lens. Um, mm-hmm. I know you touched on it a little bit earlier, but I'd love to talk a little bit more about kind of what those trips look like and, and what other what other photographers would want to know about that. 
Yeah. So yeah, the giving lens is, uh, like I said, it's a, we run photography workshops, quote unquote, um, where we visit a foreign country such as, um, you know, Uganda, Tanzania, Morocco, Jordan, Thailand, uh, Peru, Nicaragua, all those uh, beautiful countries. And we visit these countries um, with the purpose of teaching photography as a group to local children. Um, and then on top of that, yes, we're in Jordan. We're going to go to Petra. We're going to go to Wadi Rum. We're in Uganda. We're going to go trek with the silverback gorillas. We're in Tanzania. We're going to go uh, photograph lions and elephants in the Serengeti, right? So it's kind of bringing those two worlds together where you're giving back through your photography, but you're also doing a typical photography workshop. Um, and we have found incredible success with that formula. Um, people just really seem to love it. Um, and, you know, the main reason being is that, and I recommend this to everyone, if, you know, even if they're not obviously coming on a Giving Lens workshop, Working with a local nonprofit organization is the best thing you can do as a travel photographer, as a traveler, as a travel writer, whatever you your your goal is, that is the best thing you can do, in my opinion, because it opens so many doors that you would not have access to otherwise. Right. So if we go to Nicaragua, um, we are uh, walking the streets of the neighborhoods that these children live in because they're taking us through their neighborhood. They're showing us their homes. Um, and, you know, their homes are nothing more than four sheets of metal um, put together in a square. And, you know, that's it. Uh, the bathroom is a hole in the ground outside. And, you know, it's, it's, um, it's, you know, it's eye opening and it's, um, but it's something that, you know, you feel very special, right? Like you feel, you know, you've made such a connection with these children that they want to take you to their home. They want to introduce you to their family. Um, and that just opens so many opportunities for, um, for learning, um, for becoming a better person. And for storytelling, um, I assume as well. <laughs> storytelling. Exactly. That was my next one for storytelling, because that is, the that is the crux of story. That's the base of storytelling right there. Like walking through the neighborhoods of Granada, Nicaragua, where you are not going to see one other tourist. I guarantee it. And they haven't seen tourists in that neighborhood probably ever. You know, it's you know, the, the stories there and the people you meet are so fascinating. Um, and, and that wouldn't be possible without working with this local nonprofit organization. Right. And so um, so I always recommend people uh, look into working with local nonprofits when they travel because it not only you're you're not only leaving something for the community you know often people don't leave anything they just go they take their Instagram photos and they leave and that's it yeah of course they spend a couple dollars here and there but what are they really doing to help the local communities you know and so working with a nonprofit um, you're leaving some good behind um, as well as money of course um, but you know you're also opening these doors to storytelling and to life lessons that you never would have gotten otherwise and so for the giving lens that was the basis of our um, you know um, our elevator pitch so to speak we wanted to um, have that experience. But we also knew working with kids for 10 days straight would become overwhelming. You'd be in Jordan saying, man, the Petra's two hours away. Like, <laughs> I really want to go to Petra, but we've been working with these kids for 10 days. So 
we we merge those two worlds together. So we do the best of both worlds um, and, and people really love it. And then we don't really make a profit. <laughs> we make just enough to kind of pay, you know, trip leaders and, and Kate who runs everything on the back end, um, you know, but we leave a lot of the most of the profit with the nonprofit organization. So we're also uh, financially giving to them as well as teaching them a new skill. Uh, and and the idea behind that is that the skill can help their nonprofit organization. In Nicaragua, we taught these kids photography year after year after year after year. These kids got so good, they opened a gallery in Granada, Nicaragua, literally with all their prints That's on the cool. wall. And tourists come in every day and buy prints from the local kids amazing photographs, better than I take, you know, like you see these photographs, you're like, Oh my God. Like, um, and that's literally how they, they fund their nonprofit organization with, you know, a big, big part of that is with the print sales. And, and so you're leaving a lot behind, uh, when you, when you kind of, um, you know, work with nonprofits in that capacity. And that's what the given lens is all about. Well, they're able to do that because they're not using photomatics like you are still. Exactly. Right. Yeah. If they had HDR uh, overbaked photomatics, they probably wouldn't be generating the the sales that they currently are. But but yeah. Um, but yeah, <laughs> no, that, it's, uh, that's it's, awesome, man. That's a really cool. That's. A, I mean, I feel like if if someone doesn't have the means to travel, like there's probably ways to do that locally, like with local mm-hmm. nonprofits and things like that. If people are really interested in engaging in that type of um, environment. I think those stories can be told locally too. Yeah, exactly. And those nonprofits, like they will help out. If you go and volunteer your time with a nonprofit, they're not going to usually pay you in in cash, but you know what? They have one of their other volunteers who is a six month volunteer or a year volunteer, or, you know, one of the local organizers at the nonprofit. Guess what? they're going to offer you their couch. You know, someone's going to offer you a couch. If you contact them before you go down and say, hey, I want to come and volunteer and teach photography to uh, your kids for a week, they're going to say, great, we would love to have you. If you need a place to stay, we've got a couch. You know, we've got an extra room, whatever the case may be. And guess what? You're saving money right there on a hotel. I mean, um, you know, they're 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 going to cook at the nonprofit maybe and, and have food there. It's like, it's also a way to save money. So you're not getting paid in cash. But you're also not spending nearly as much because a nonprofit is helping take care of those expenses for you. And so it's a great way for especially, you know, it's a great way for any travel photographer or filmmaker or writer to tell stories. But especially if you're kind of just getting started because you've got the stories be basically right in front of you and you've got financial assistance to help ease the pain of the cost of, of doing this. Um, and it's really a win-win situation, I think, especially for newcomers. Nice. Yeah, that sounds great. And how many, how many trips do you guys do a year? Well, <laughs> before COVID. <laughs> of course. So yeah, COVID and we, we get a lot of questions about that. And we, we are constantly talking behind the scenes about our next step because it's not like, you know, a landscape photography workshop, right? A landscape photography workshop is kind of like the NBA bubble last year, right? Like, so you're, (laughs) (laughs) you're all getting together, you're going in one van, you know, if everyone gets tested and all that stuff beforehand, you know, and you're in these landscapes, chances are you're not going to be around too many people. Right. And the other people you're going to be around are tourists, just like you, you know, photographers, whatever you know, if you're in a hotel having dinner or something like that. Right. Yeah. But the problem with the giving lens workshops is that we're literally going into these local communities with these local kids 
And they don't have the same vaccines that we do. They don't have the same healthcare that we do. They don't have ventilators like we do, right? Like, so that's a real big problem because, you know, right now it's just morally a tough call because we can't put together the type of workshops that, that we're really passionate about in this environment because it's just... It's too risky. You bring yeah, the, COVID down to the name, some of these. The name, uh, the name, giving the giving lens would take on a full, whole different meaning. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we don't want to be that kind of giving. We don't want to uh, right. be giving uh, COVID. Right. So yeah, it's um, it's hard with uh, COVID, and obviously that's a challenge that we face. Um, so I think the last workshop we did was probably my Mongolia workshop in September. Uh, right before COVID, September. I don't even know when did COVID start. Two thousand twenty. Uh, March yeah, of twenty twenty. Yeah, because it's been it two, almost two years. Here. Yeah. Yeah. So I think September two thousand nineteen was my my last workshop for the Giving Lens, and I'm pretty sure we didn't have any after that. So um, so yeah, we haven't done a workshop since September two thousand nineteen. Hopefully, we can get them at least one back off the ground this year. Um, you know, obviously. If it's safe and, um, you know, and it makes sense. Um, but before that, I mean, yeah, we were doing probably, oh man, eight, maybe 80. Oh, wow. And six to eight. I think. Were you doing all, were you doing all of those? Not all of them, at least probably I would say half. Um, but you know, it, it, I was doing most of them in the earlier days and, um, you know, we just obviously got bigger and we needed to, we added more trips and we needed to bring in more people, obviously in case I got sick or too busy or whatever, um, we needed to have other workshop leaders, you know, uh, be, be there to pick up the slack. And so we started bringing in other, uh, leaders. And, uh, so yeah, I think I'd probably lead about half, I would say. Cool. Well, hopefully you guys can get those going strong hoping, again man. soon. Yeah. It's, it literally, it's, out of all the stuff I do, the Giving Lens trips are by far, by far my favorite. I bet. I mean, and I can say that hands down, unequivocally. I've been to Norway, make you know, uh, filming surfers with Chris Burkhardt for ten days. You know, like that was cool. That was an awesome trip. But nothing gets my creative juices flowing and just makes me feel so happy and so good as I do with the Giving Lens trips. And so. Um, yeah, I just, and, and it, everyone who comes loves it. And I mean, we have people that have been on seven trips with us. Wow. That's cool. Six trips, five trips. You know, we have, you know, I would say 80 to 90% of before, right before COVID 80 to 90% of our trips were, uh, filled with return customer return. I mean, it sounds, it sounds like a great way to, to see the world and photograph it, but then also make connections to the, you know, the real people that actually live there and, and you're giving it, it back. I mean, it's a win-win-win, right? It it really is. And I mean, I'd be lying if I said I don't shed tears at the end uh, of these trips. And most of the participants do as well, uh, both the kids and the people that come down with us, because it's such a emotional connecting process working with these kids. Um, you know, you just, you consider them your own, you know, like you feel like they're your own kid. <laughs> and you know, and then it's time to literally say goodbye. And uh, we have like a going away dinner and a going away kind of party. And it, then it's time to say goodbye. And that goodbye lasts for three hours, you mm. know, just wow. hugs nonstop, left and right. Everyone's crying. Everyone's, you know, it's uh, it's really emotional and it's, it's an incredibly special um, program. And just like that type of photography is just so special to me. 
and and yeah, I just highly recommend everyone go do that. You know, not necessarily with the Giving Lens, just go volunteer at a local nonprofit, um, get to know the local people, especially if it's you know based with children. Uh, it's it's really a incredible experience. Well, I know the Giving Lens has like a like a email newsletter because I think I get it every once in a while. So mm-hmm. I'm sure you could just Google the Giving Lens and sign up for those yep. newsletters. And next time you guys have a trip, you can be the first to know and get on board. Yeah, please do. Yeah, sign up for the newsletter at thegivinglens.com, the Giving Lens on Instagram, the Giving Lens on Facebook. Pretty easy to to find. Um, but yeah, please. Sign up for it. We will keep everyone posted as soon as we're able to safely return to the wild. Um, and trust me, it's 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 going to be worth the wait. I promise. Nice, especially well, if I'm leading the trip because oh, of course, of course, yeah, yeah I can be fun. You're a fun guy, and you know yeah. you can teach people photomatics and yeah. <laughs> <laughs> is that even still out there? I don't even. Know. I think it is. I don't know, man. <laughs> photomatics in MySpace. Rest in peace. You know, you know, it is funny though. Um, I think one, <laughs> I think this is true. You have, there's this one really terrible HDR photo that pops up like once a year on my uh. Facebook feed <laughs> that I think it's like Toby Harriman's page or yeah. your, uh, someone. Uh-huh. And it's no, no, like, it's my page. Oh, it's yours. But like every year someone comments it to, to like raise it from the dead. And it's, it's my landscape photo, right? And it's to- totally me terrible like it's disgusting so so okay so um you can feel free to to bleep this out or cut this out or whatever but the story behind that photo is that it's a a photo uh, i was writing for f-stoppers at the time and it's a uh now by the way i'm at petapixel um we are starting a division called petapixel travel yeah we'll so talk look about for that. that yeah look yeah. for that soon um, but yeah, so, uh, so, uh, the story behind that photo is that that is from Lake Tahoe and I, hopefully we can find a way to post a link in, in whatever description you have, uh, when you post this, but the, the photo, I took a, a landscape photo with my iPhone, just of a sunset at Lake Tahoe. Right. And there's a couple big rocks in the foreground. I think I, San Harbor beach or something. I think the place is called, I can't remember, but a couple big rocks in the foreground, um, and so I f- threw it through, um, uh, um, Snapseed and I applied the HDR filter, not once because you put it up to a hundred, you can't go any more than a hundred. So then I saved it and then I reopened it and put it through again at a hundred. Right. So I had plus 200 HDR on that photo in Snapseed. And I'm like, I'm going to post this photo just because it's so funny. It's so, you know, overbaked. Like I, I got over my overbaked photomatic stage by this point. Um, but I just thought it was funny. Like, I'm going to post this and see how many people like catch the drift that it's a joke, right? That I'm posting this insanely horrible overbaked um, HDR photo. So I posted it and right away the comments start rolling in. I'm getting beeps and bells and whistles on my phone. I'm like, whoa. So I look and it's like 20 comments, like in the first five minutes. And I'm like, wow, I guess that photo really struck a nerve. And so I start reading the comments and they're all like, they're all like, um, you know, <laughs> Just like, um, whoa, that's a that's a big dingaling or so, like. I you mean, know, just let's like let's just weird, be clear. Weird, it, it it looks like a phallus. There you go. You said it, not me. I didn't know how much I could say in this in this podcast, but <laughs> I didn't I didn't notice it when I posted the photo. I took the photo and just posted it. I'd never like you have to really like squint your eyes. Remember those like three D? Oh like, yeah. Art, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like you know, like those three D like puzzle uh, posters. Um, you have to really like squint your eyes. And then once you see it, I mean, it is there 
and it is big. It is in your face and you cannot unsee it. But it took me, people were commenting and they were saying all these, you know, phallic references. And I'm like, what? (laughs) And so I'm looking at it and it took me a good three to four minutes because I'm just staring at it. I'm like, what is it? What are these people talking about? And then all of a sudden it hit me like a ton of bricks. I saw it. I'm like, oh my God. I had no idea. Complete happy accident. And yeah, that photo has gone down in infamy because yeah, every year it gets bumped. Somebody gets a notification that, you know, a year ago, or I'll get my Facebook memory that a year, you know, seven years ago, I posted this photo or something and I'll just go in and type bump in the comments. And then all of a sudden (laughs) it comes back up. Yeah. Uh, I want to back up. uh, See what I did there? I see. I see what you did there. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, Every time it comes across my feed, it's like you, like you throw up in your mouth a little bit, but then you also laugh. <laughs> it's one of those kind of situations. I mean, it, yeah, it's and what what is just so funny to me is that I didn't see it. Like you know, like <laughs> right. it, when you see it, like you're gonna be like, oh yeah, he obviously saw this and he took that photo and he posted it because he saw that phallic symbol in the foreground with the rocks. But I honestly swear to God, I did not see it. I did not notice it until after everyone started commenting. And that's why it's so funny because it was a happy accident. Um, And then we actually, I wrote, or somebody else at F-Stoppers wrote a whole article about it because that was right around when Peter Lick sold his photo for $6 million. Oh, you mean, Um, you mean Peter Lick had his lawyer buy the photo for $6 million? Uh Yeah. Yeah. Peter Lick himself purchased his own artwork for $6 million. Pretty sure that's true. Yeah. I mean, it's a marketing stunt. (laughs) Anyway, the guy's a good marketer. I can tell you that much, man. Um, and so, um, yeah, so that was right around the same time that Peter Lake sold that. And so I can't remember what the article was about, but somebody else on F-Stoppers wrote an article saying, you know, what is a $6 million photograph? And that photograph was the header, you know, the the thumbnail. (laughs) And it it literally was about that photograph. Like, okay, so Peter Lake sold this photograph for 6 million. How much can we sell this photograph for? (laughs) And I think we, we actually sold it somewhere. For like a couple hundred bucks or something. I don't remember like the whole story. It's been a long time since I read that article. But yeah, we actually did sell it. Um, not for six million, I wish. And then I think we gave the money to to charity or something. But <laughs> that yeah. probably would do pretty well as an NFT. Dude, <laughs> now you're talking. Oh, right. how did I not see that? Oh, All yeah. right. Own Michael Bonacore's gonna... phallus for five ETH. <laughs> Oh, if I can get five ETH, I will be a happy man, dude. Yeah, that's that's a lot of ETH, man. That's about twenty thousand oh, bucks right now. Right. Uh, yeah. So oh. yeah, I'll take five ETH for my for my phallus picture. I can't believe we just talked of the like rock of the rock. Ten minutes my... about an HDR phallus. That's good stuff. I told you, man, before we got on this call over the last couple of days, I told you I can literally talk about anything for hours. And I think you're unfortunately seeing that right now. It's fine. It's fine. I'm good with it. Well, you did mention uh, Petapixel Travel, and I'd I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about what that is and and what your role is going to be with that. Uh, Yeah. So um, Petapixel Travel, obviously, probably most people listening to this know Petapixel. It's a massive uh, photography and tech. Just don't Um, read the comments. Just don't read the comments especially if it's your work they're highlighting because they are brutal. Exactly. I don't know if they're any more brutal. DP Review, though, man, those comments are brutal too, dude. I used to cross-post on DP Review years ago, and man, they were they were brutal over there. 
yeah. So basically don't read the comments anywhere on any site or any Twitter. Um, and uh, so anyway, yeah, Petapixel obviously is a huge uh, site. And so uh, years ago, Resource Magazine, which was um, a really great printed magazine uh, that covered photography, lifestyle, video, gear, all that kind of stuff. A beautiful magazine, man. I, it, it was one of the best. Um, I had randomly uh, met the owner of that magazine in Vegas, thanks to my buddy Jaron Schneider, who's now the editor oh, of yeah. Petapixel. Yeah. And so he told me, uh, he introduced me to Alex because he was working at Resource at the time, Resource Magazine at the time. And so, um, yeah, basically Alex and I came up with the idea of starting something called Resource Travel. And that was essentially a division of Resource Magazine that covered, you know, I saw the potential beyond photography, right? Like, so, you know, the, a, a website like Resource or reps, website like Petapixel has a massive photography demographic, which great. There's nothing wrong with that. But the demographic between travel and photography is getting closer by the day, right? Like the more advancements camera phones have, the easier it is to share photos, the easier it is to learn how to take good photos. Like photography and travel are so hand in hand at this point um, that, you know, it's just... Uh, the the demographic is just there for, uh, you know, really interesting and engaging travel specific stories that also focus on photo tips and photo, you know, beautiful visuals and whatnot. So uh, that's what I did for resource travel, resource or resource magazine. I sort of resource travel that took off was very successful. Uh, unfortunately, uh, print uh, magazines don't make money like they used to uh, in this day and age. So uh, resources, uh, no longer with us. Oh. Um, and, uh, yeah, so basically we're taking that same concept over to Petapixel. And so, um, I've been gradually adding content to the site. Um, but in 2022, especially the first quarter of 2022, we're really going to be hyper-focused on, uh, sharing incredible, uh, travel stories, uh, engaging visual stories from around the world and, and sharing tips and tricks on how to, be a better traveler, a better photographer, a better travel photographer. Uh, there's going to be a lot of really incredible content. Uh, and so, yeah, I've been looking forward to getting that off the ground for quite a while, but 2021, I think that's the year where, yeah, 2021 was insanely busy, especially the second half of the year with uh, tourism board work. So and are you guys, it's been a gradual slow burn, but are you guys going to accept content from like the general public as well? We are. Okay. Yes, we are. Yeah. So if you have any content uh, that you uh, think is travel uh, worthy or photography worthy uh, in general, you can either write uh, mbonacore at petapixel.com or uh, eic at petapixel.com. And yeah, please share your stories and uh, we will take our favorites and we will uh, republish them and they will get a lot of views and um, yeah, you will get a lot of adoring fans. Just don't read the comments. I was going to say, I, uh, <laughs> yeah, I, it's funny. We, um, so we recently launched the natural landscape photography awards and mm -hmm. one of our marketing strategies that we identified early on was trying to get something published in Petapixel, but that wasn't about the awards, but it was about like a concept that was part of the genesis of the awards. And it's, mm -hmm. I don't know if you're familiar, but it's basically we created a competition that um, you uh, we have very limited uh, post-processing techniques that you could use. So, you yeah. know, not a lot of compositing and stuff like that. Yeah, um, that's awesome. I, we need more of that these days. 
Yeah. So, so what we did is the, the four of us basically joint wrote an article for Petapixel and like wordsmithed it for like probably a month straight. And then I sent it to Jaren and they published it. And of course the nice. comments were just, well, the comments <laughs> were mostly positive, but of course, you know, there's always somebody who's just going to be a jerk, you know? Yeah. Exactly. It's the internet. <laughs> it's the internet in 2021. You can't get away from it. <laughs> yeah. But no, that sounds great. Yeah. You need to pause? Yes. Cool. Yeah. So like, um, one thing I was curious though, like for the travel Petapixel, um, I'm assuming you're not paying people for that content, but it's still great quote unquote exposure, right? I mean, you know, it, there, there's, <laughs> there's a lot of, um, you know, um, factors that go into that. Um, uh -huh. You know, we obviously uh, are looking for long-term contributors, right? Right. And Which so, I think is benefits somebody if they can, I mean, I know exactly. I can think of a couple of people who basically that's how they got their name on the map is they just became regular contributors to F-Stoppers or to Betapixel and yeah. now they're a known entity. Yeah. I mean, that's, I mean, that's, you know, there's been a lot of ways that I've gotten to where I am, which isn't that uh, far, but you know, Come on, uh, man. yeah, obviously the networking we talked about, um, that's helped a lot, but also, yes, I wrote for F stoppers for probably over a year. Um, I wrote for resource magazine and then started resource travel for a couple years. Um, and then now I'm at Petapixel and yeah, like those, articles that I write, you know, got a lot of traction and that traction opened up doors for me right. with other brands and other, um, you know, um, uh, publications and whatnot that, you know, I wasn't getting paid for those articles that I wrote, but the payments that came in because of that down the line, right. you know, everything combined, you know, it's, it's a, it's a marathon, not a sprint. So all that combined just really just like, help me get to where I am now, quote unquote. Um, and yeah, it's, so there is value in just, especially when you're, you know, a newcomer, like um, there's a lot about, or, you know, like um, Michael Shanebloom, right? Like we love Michael Shanebloom. Like Michael Shanebloom is such an incredible photographer um, and his, his YouTube vlogs are phenomenal. Like he just, he gets right down to it. They're beautiful. Yes. He talks about his process, all that kind of stuff, right? And he sends us, every time he has a new video, he sends it to us and says, hey, here's a new video. Here's a bunch of photos, you know? And obviously he's not asking for payment um, because he's getting that exposure is helping him get a lot of views on those video, which, um, you know, obviously he's monetizing through YouTube. And so, you know, it's like, there's other ways. And that, again, this isn't to say that, that con contributions can't be paid, but, you know, there's, there's always all these other ways to, you know, to generate um, hype around you and that translates into income. Right. I mean, I think what we're talking about here is actually having a marketing strategy is probably a good idea. And sometimes exactly. part of that marketing strategy is providing content for free to big hubs. And it's probably going to lead, it could lead to something else if that content is actually good. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. If if the content is good and you're a great storyteller and you've, you know, like that's going to lead to, and like, um, you know, a lot of the work I get with tourism boards and brands, you know, I'm sending them specific articles that I've gotten published on F-Stoppers, Resource Travel, Petapixel, my own website. Right. I'm sending them specific, I, I go to them with an idea. 
right? I don't go to them blindly and say, hey, I would love to work with you. Let's chat. They get hundreds of those a day. Yeah, I do research and I figure out, you know, what the place is about. What is the least visited place? What are the stories that I could tell that no one else has told that the tourism board doesn't even know that they want, right? The tourism board doesn't know they want this story until I tell them about it. And then they go, man, that's a good story, right? And so you have to go into these pitches with ammo, right? You have to go in with, with you know, an idea uh, and a game plan for them to even consider talking to you, right? And so with that, I use a similar type of ideas or similar type of um, stories that I publish on all these different outlets. And I say, hey, look, here's what I did um, in Tahiti. Uh, for G technology, or here's what I did in Cuba for Tamron lenses. And, you know, this is how I see, um, you know, our relationship working out with this specific idea that I have for you. And so I'm using those articles that were published five years ago to this day to generate new business. That makes a lot of sense. I think it's hard for most of us to think through all of that. You know, I, I, I've been trying to do more things kind of like that. And it's, you know, it's hard to, it's just hard to think that way, I guess, for, for some people, you know, does that make sense? Like that's no it, strategy, it, yeah. you know what I mean? <laughs> it is. And, you know, it's, it, it, it is hard. I mean, there's, we all have strengths and weaknesses, right? Like yeah. um, I'm incredibly good at like marketing and selling and promotion and uh, storytelling uh, and actually planning a trip. Like I can, I can really produce, um, you know, any uh, story, any film, any any content that we're creating. I can produce it from uh, step one to step, you know, Z. What I can't, what I'm horrible at, is organization. <laughs> I'm a terrible organizer, right? And so, like, that's funny. Obviously, that creates a lot of problems in my life and my business. But we all have strengths and weaknesses, and all we can do is you know, um, try to learn how to improve those weaknesses, uh, utilizing our strengths. So taking some of the skills you have and applying that to a weakness. Um, and yeah, so sometimes for some people, it is hard to kind of get in that mindset, but you know, it's, it's just a learning process. It's a trial and error. Everything takes practice. Or finding someone else who's good at it to do it for you. Right. Yep. Or (laughs) that's another thing I'm terrible at is, um, delegating. Right. So I literally am a one stop shop for everything. Like I do all my own photo calling. I do all my own photo editing. I do all my own video calling, all my own video editing. I do literally everything in my business. And that sucks because I could be (laughs) way more successful and have way more free time if I learned how to delegate and hired someone on to do it. And it's not about like, you know, not wanting to pay. Like I will gladly pay someone to do X, Y, and Z. Problem is, it's my own mental block that prevents me from giving up that control over my content, right? And so, yeah, so we all have these weaknesses and it's just a matter of working on yourself, improving yourself and and practicing. Everything comes down to practicing. You didn't become a good photographer without years of sucking first. You know, it's just a matter of repetitive motion. Keep doing this, keep learning, keep trying different things. And eventually it's going to be so ingrained in your brain that you can do it in your sleep, right? And so I approach marketing and sales and and brand collaboration in that same way. Like, you know, I wasn't always that great at it, um, but it gets better with time the more you do it and the more you um, put a, a focus on it. Because ultimately that's what makes me and 
a lot of photographers out there money. Like uh, I got a spoiler alert for everyone. Instagram photographers' lives are not nearly as fun as they look, <laughs> right? Like you're only seeing the the highlight reel of all their cool stuff. 90% of the time, successful photographers, filmmakers, content producers are behind a computer. Yeah. And and 80% of that time is sending emails and invoices and quotes. And, you know, it's, it's not nearly as fun as we make it look <laughs> on on social media. Um, but yeah, yeah, I was going to say that a lot of your like travel stuff and the storytelling stuff is probably a lot more like thinking of the pitch and putting together the pitch and like really trying to understand your customer and how to get mm -hmm. them interested in working with you versus actually yeah. doing the project for them. Doing the project is easy. Right? <laughs> right. Like once you get everything there and solidified, like that's the easy part and the fun part, right? Obviously that's where the real fun comes in. But yeah, it's all the other stuff is what takes all the time and all the energy and and it's not the the sexy stuff, man. It's it's the boring day-to-day -day monotone type of stuff, but yeah, you know, you if you want to be a business owner and you want to be successful, you you have to take the good with the bad and um unfortunately, uh computer time and emails and invoices and quotes are, you know, the majority of the day-to-day -day life of a, you know, full-time photographer. And to me, I don't, that stuff doesn't bother me personally. Uh, <laughs> the things I'm not good at is like video editing is I'm terrible. Mm -hmm. Well, I just haven't done enough of it, but I'm not great at that. And I'm not super good at like coming up with those pitch ideas, you know, like, yeah, that's just not intuitive for me. But um, if you can find someone who can help you, that's even better. Yeah, exactly. And it's a matter of like crafting, you know, like, like I'm not a very, like I'm good at coming up with these pitches and ideas. Um, but if I'm, you know, but I'm more of a, uh, reactive photographer filmmaker, right? So I'm very good at reacting to the situations in front of me, capturing that and then putting it together in uh, a story afterwards. Like I'm good at that. Like that's my style. My style is, you know, sometimes I, I do a lot of like music videos for my buddies, the brothers comatose. I just finished one, uh, two or three days ago. Um, and, uh, I love music videos by the way, cause music selecting music is always the hardest part about video making. And so when the music is literally there for you to just build the story around, oh, so much better. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like, like a lot of times, like, because them, they're party guys or a super fun band. And we literally go into our video shoots. I've done five music videos from them now. We've gone in with, I mean, we go in and we meet up with literally the bare minimum of like thought or ideas. Uh, and we usually only have 24 hours to shoot it because they're on the road. And it's just a reactive process to what's happening in front of us. Hey, why don't we do this? Why don't we do this? You know, like, um, or I see something that they're doing naturally. That's really cool. Like, you know, so I'm very, that's my mindset is more reactive than proactive. Um, and I do wish I was more proactive. I do wish I could thoroughly lay out a storyboard and a game plan. And, um, I'm just not good at that. I'm good at telling you what I'm going to do, um, and, and selling you on the idea. But then when it comes to, uh, producing it, um, I, I, I function better when it's more reactive and I just kind of roll with the punches and right. um, go with the flow. And I, I'm, I suspect that finding other people to collaborate with that might have some of those strengths that you don't have is worked out pretty well for you as well in terms of finding ways to work together and produce something that you can leverage your strengths and their strengths. Super well. I mean, that's, that's the essence of having a partner, right? Like whether it's 
having a wife or uh, a business partner or a collaboration partner or, you know, a good partnership, you play off each other's strengths and weaknesses. So where one person is strong, they help you out with your weaknesses. And where you're strong, you help them out because they're not as strong in that specific um, category. And that's, you know, the the basis of a good partnership. And yeah, if you can find someone that kind of complements that, yep. the yin to your yang or whatever, the zen uh, yeah. if you can find someone that compliments that, like, you know, um, yeah, it's, it's an incredible feeling, but, uh, but they're rare, you know, it's, it's rare to kind of find that person that, that, you know, you collaborate so well with, uh, and that you just kind of fill in each other's, um, you know, holes when it comes to weaknesses. It's, it's hard. It's not easy to find that, that perfect, uh, creative soulmate, but, uh, every so often they come. Yeah. Well, Michael, I'd love to hear, who would you recommend for the podcast? Who are a couple of people that our listeners would want to know more about? Oh, man. Well, Renan Ozturk, uh, he's easily one of my favorite photographers of, of all time. Um, uh, and I always hope I'm saying his last name right. I was, it's Ozturk or Ozturk. Either way, Renan is, I mean, the guy is just incredible. Everything about the dude is just like mind-blowing you see his photography. He's a Nat Geo photographer. You see his photography, his films. He makes films uh, with his uh, uh, partner, Taylor. Um, everything about the dude is just so amazing. And he's such an interesting guy. I had the pleasure of, I've known, the, I've known him for a couple of years and I had the pleasure of interviewing him. I uh, did a series of uh, condo interviews at the Sony event, um, uh, you know, with Chris Burkhardt, Renan, um, you know, and he's just such a fascinating guy. I would love to hear him for sure. Awesome. Awesome. He was in like, uh, he, he made a film with Jimmy Chin. Oh, sweet. Years ago. Yeah. And I, I can't remember the name of that film. Um, but it is, it is incredible. And I won't spoil the, uh, the plot line, um, because some, some really crazy stuff, especially with Renan happens in that film. Um, and so, uh, Meru, that's the name of the film. Oh yeah. 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 Meru 2015. Um, so, um, it's just, it's a beautiful film. I think it's, yeah, I think it's Jimmy's first film if I'm not mistaken, but it's incredible. And Vernon is one of the three, uh, main subjects of the film, uh, with Jimmy. And so, yeah, I just highly recommend watching that. And I highly recommend following Renan on Instagram and uh, everything like that. Cause the guy is just, he does incredible work and, and he's just a fascinating uh, individual with a crazy story, crazy backstory, crazy life. Um, and so I highly recommend uh, talking to him. I'd be the first one. I better get an advanced copy of that. If you do, I can do that. <laughs> Sweet. Yes. Yeah. Cool. Man. Finally, I'm VIP. Right. It all you have to do is instead of being the VIP manager, I'm actually the VIP for once. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Always the bridesmaid, never the bride. Isn't that what they say, Matt? <laughs> so, uh, well, the, hey, man, this has been super fun and a long time coming. And so I'm glad we could finally make it work out. And I'm um, really looking forward to seeing what you do with the Petapixel thing. And obviously, the giving lens. Hopefully, you guys can get that off the ground again in the coming year. That would be awesome. Yeah. I'm. Yeah, I'm really hoping we can uh, get that going again this year. I mean, the Giving Lens will be back one way or another at some point. Um, you know, it um, just all depends on the state of the world. Right. So hopefully we, hopefully the world can get itself under control uh, and we can uh, get back on the road. But uh, 
But yeah, I can't thank you enough for having me. Finally, Matt, after five years of begging you to let me on. Oh, is that how it's, that's how it's been? Okay. Yeah, it's, that's how it's been, man. I send you a message like every two or three months. Right. Go, hey, man, can I come on your podcast? And I was and like, go, I don't know, man. Oh, dude, we're so booked up. I've had Colby Brown on three times in the last month. I got no room for you. you right. know? And Colby said yeah. you wouldn't be that fun anyway. Colby said I wouldn't be fun. And he, yeah. he was probably right. It was probably... Uh, <laughs> It was probably a disaster, so I apologize to anyone who somehow stuck around for this long. <laughs> I apologize. Feel free to send me an invoice for the time wasted. <laughs> I'm not going to pay it, but you can feel free to send it to me all you want. Well, thanks to Michael for the great chat on the podcast today. I encourage all of you to head over to thegivinglens.com to learn more about that great venture that Michael has going on and to his website at michaelbonacore.com to see his amazing work and great storytelling. If you enjoyed our chat here today, you can listen to 13 additional minutes of conversation over on Patreon, where Michael and I discuss the heavy topic of travel photography and the conundrum of carbon that we all face as photographers. I also want to make sure that listeners keep in mind that you can support each other in our community Some ways you can support the people that support me includes signing up for a workshop from one of our Patreon supporters like Gary Randall or David Kingham, signing up for newsletters about new Lightroom tips and tricks from our supporters Michael Rung and Suzanne Mathia, listening to great women landscape photography podcasts from Serena Jackson, seeing amazing amphibian photography from Joshua Wallace. Those are just a few examples, and you can find links to all of their websites over on my website at mattpainphotography.com, and then click on podcast. Well, that's all for now. Thanks for stopping in, collaborating with us, and listening. See you next week.